Even Kevin tell the untold stories of the Star City Games Power 9 series on episode 66 of So Many Insane Plays. Welcome to episode 66 of So Many Insane Plays, a walk down memory lane for the Star City Games Power 9 series from the early turn of the century. I'm Kevin Crone with Stephen Menendian. Hi, everyone. If you have any comments or questions, you can tweet us at Many Insane Plays, email us at So Many Insane Plays Podcast at gmail.com, or leave feedback on Eternal Central, MTG Cast, or TheManadrain.com. Before we get into the meat of our topic today, Steve, do you have some announcements for us? Well, we're just on the precipice of summer here, uh, and there's going to be a lot of key events this summer. We've announced them before, but we might as well just remind folks. The New York Stack Exchange event, the NYSE 5, is being held in New York in uh, late June. That event is going to be amazing, uh, (laughs) but it's quickly filling up. I think there's about 50 slots left. It's $125 entry, but the but speaking of Power 9 events, the top eight is, is receiving essentially Power 9, and then uh, I think Sans Twister. Um, so it's going to be an awesome event. It's always an awesome event. Very competitive, very fun. That will be on Long Island. There's also, we've announced the Vintage Championship is going to be in October in Pittsburgh, mm-hmm. at the Eternal Weekend, rather. And, um, Kevin, any other vintage announcements, tournaments in your neck of the woods? No, the the next event near me is this weekend, and our show won't be up in time for that. We do have an Eternal Weekend qualifier coming up in June, though, locally. Oh, that'll be cool. That'll be sanctioned? Yeah, it's sanctioned, and it's on the 10th, um, and you can find that information on the Mana Drain. So, Steve, do you have any other local, like, vintage or old-school events coming up at Udo or nearby? Well, the, yeah, the Udo one's actually this weekend, which unfortunately I can't attend. But it's interesting. There's an, I guess we could make this an announcement. <laughs> Wizards has announced they are ending the Power 9 challenge, speaking right. of the Power 9 series, which has been the go-to premiere event on Magic Online for vintage players. Well, the truth of the matter is they didn't actually announce the end of it. What they did instead was they announced an event that would be competing with it, and effectively, you know, it's disappeared as a right. result. So once a month, you know, this you may recall, Rich Shea and I wrote an article, uh, an article or an open letter requesting that they, instead of having like premier events, which are the higher payout events, like three times a week that no one, none of them fired, that they do a big one once once a month, and that's resulted in the Power Nine series. They have announced now they're going to be a vintage challenge every Saturday at 10 a.m. Pacific, every weekend. Now, the yeah. minimum number of players that need to enroll is eight. So they're going to fire, but they the payouts go to the top 32. And it turns out that Power Nine on, on Vintage, for Power Nine on Magic Online just isn't worth a lot. <laughs> so <laughs> the, so now these treasure chests are going to be the payout, and they're, it's a much more lucrative payout. So I think the, the player base and the Vintage community is pretty happy with it. I have to say I'm a little bit concerned that having an event every week is going to diminish or dim the enthusiasm for the event a little bit. I certainly was right. very excited to play in these events every weekend. I mean, at once a month, rather. You know, assume, 
it's interesting. I was very excited to play in them, but I was only able to play in about six of them last year, maybe maybe five or six. Right. But I, but I certainly tried to make all the ones I could. Now that there are 52 of them a, a, a year, <laughs> it's like, well, which ones do you play in? You just can't make them all. And also it's going to be interesting to see if they have any effect with paper events. Like if you have a paper event, I don't know, let's say an hour and a half away that you were planning to go to, would you really drive to it if, if you have Magic Online and could just wake up, roll out of bed, and you know play it online? Right. I don't know. I mean, obviously it's part of the vintage experience is the community and experiencing the, the shop, but there's a trade-off at some point, right, where people – People have to drive from far away. So we'll see what happens and how that affects paper vintage. But I think on the whole, the vintage community is very happy about it. I'm a little concerned, mm -hmm. but I'm probably in the extreme minority with that. There aren't too many people who face that conundrum you just described, right? The online community only has a handful of people who truly overlap with the regular vintage scene. That's probably true. But if the online community grows, right now it's probably like 100 players or so. If it grows, then there will be more conflict there. True. Uh, you know, there are some people who live in the, um, you know, that Atlantic Corridor. What is it? Like Pennsylvania, New Jersey, um, D.C. Those people have a lot of tournament options. And I, I just think it's unfortunate that these will might be competing with some local events. I, I would like to see that not happen. But it's also, it's also not clear that this is going to be... They're going to fire, but it's not clear... I think there's going to be some diminution in prestige as well. Oh, yeah. Because, because the, the Power 9 Challenge, you didn't really get less than 50 players, and sometimes you got around 70. But if everyone knew that's the event to play in, and that's where all the competitors showed up, now it's going to be spread across you know, four or five weekends a month. Right. Um, you know, I expect this event to draw 30 to 50 players. That's my guess. It'll be right. less players, fewer, fewer players, and... And maybe less, I don't know, cachet attached with winning or top eighting these. <laughs> right. Uh, that, that, but we'll see. We'll see. You know, it's going to yeah. give us a nice steady stream of data we'll be able to look at and compile. So that that's the upside. But it may also push the metagame to move more quickly. I don't know. We'll find out. Also, Wizards has, has posted the top 32 deck lists, which is really nice. So we have a lot more deck lists now than we've had for the Power 9 Challenge, where they only posted the top 16. So that's and a big difference. Combining that with the frequency of the event means significantly more data, actually. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah. So we'll we'll be following that. That's a big announcement. So if you if you know if you were on the fence about playing vintage on Magic Online, I guess that's a huge draw. You know, the Power Nine Challenge, to my mind, was enough of a draw. But now you can do it every weekend. <laughs> I think so. it'll, I think it'll be attractive to some, right? A couple of people who just. If you miss one of the monthly premieres, it feels like you're missing your vintage for two months almost. That's true. Whereas that's this, true. This event means you can get to half of them out of the month, and you're playing in more events. That's that's a plus, I would think. No doubt. Um, I did top eight the last Power Nine Challenge in April, which was right after the restriction of Gush. Um, so, and I I've always wanted to win one of those. So now that I, I won't have an opportunity to do that, it's a little bit disappointing. Um, yeah. But but at least I did top eight the last one. I, I may restream that event at some point, uh, but I haven't decided nice. when, when, or when I'll do that. Nice. It's interesting. I actually forewed the the first daily, or I guess the second daily after the restriction took effect. It was the day after the restriction was announced. Right. I forewed that daily. <laughs> <laughs> it was pretty funny. <laughs> um, nice. And I I very rarely play in dailies just because I I never get home from work early enough on the Pacific Coast. Right. time zone to play in them 
Um, but just looking at 2016, I played in February one, June, the August, November. I only. It looks like I only played in like played in like four or five of them, which is unfortunate now that I think about it. But one of them was the exact same day I think as the Vintage Championship. Another was on New Year's Eve. So there were some inconvenient times, to your point, right, about conflicts for some of those Power 9 events. Well, so I guess the question goes then, will you play in more of these now that they're every weekend? <laughs> That's a good question. Well, probably on the whole, probably. But but if there's fewer players, then I don't necessarily know if that's an uh, uh, an improvement, right? Sure. But I guess I guess we'll have an opportunity to compare that, right? It's not like it's not like the Power Nine challenges were getting 150 players. I mean, they started out with a bang, but they kind of plateaued. I'd say is the way of putting it. Oh sure. Right. Oh sure. And I think I think we'll see a similar pattern when we talk about the Star City Game series <laughs> in a few minutes. <laughs> <laughs> well, so speaking of that, we'll return to our usual fare of analyzing vintage decks and metagames very soon. Right. After right. the post restriction metagame has had more time to mature so yeah we're only a month out from the restriction right and we do we do want to take a i mean one of the things that we want to do is we want to look at our predictions for the restriction because we recorded both before and after the restriction mm -hmm. that week and we want to look at how our predictions fared in terms of the metagaming we, we made some specific predictions about workshops percentage of the metagame we talked about what we thought would happen with mentor uh, we, we talked about what we thought would be the best draw engine so we'll we'll return to that you know in the near future, when there's a little bit more time for this metagame to evolve and mature, to mm -hmm. your point. Uh, but we're not going to do that today. Today, we're going to take a look back. Yeah, today is a bit of a return to something that we have done before or early on in our show, but we've been so focused on metagame data and deck development over the course of the last year or more that this might feel like a bit of a throwback for us. <laughs> but yeah. what we're going to talk about here is a little bit of a history of the Star City Games Power 9 series, which we allude to with some frequency on this show, but which we acknowledge several, perhaps most of our users may not have any experience or understanding of. And it was really formative in the vintage community, the format, and, you know, our relationship and this show. So we've, yeah. we owe a lot to Star City Games and, and this period of time. No, they start, we've actually interviewed Ray Robillard a couple years ago, who was the mm -hmm. organizer of the Waterberries. And we talked about the history of that series and what he was doing and, and promoted the heck out of that series. And that which continues right. to this day. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to make the one in April. We didn't even cover the results for that, Kevin, did we? No, unfortunately not. I think only a cursory glance. <laughs> yeah. Um, we did actually, I think, mention it, but we didn't get really to dive into it. Um, right. But but we're going to do the same thing for Star City Games now. We're not going to interview Pete Hoffling or anything like that, but we're <laughs> going to talk about it. But we do have actually one other announcement I wanted to mention. GP Vegas is the is is in June, and for old school and vintage players, that's actually a lot of nice events to play, Kevin. Yeah, the, that's true. It's been getting a lot of press on social media, people talking about, wow, there's so much to do for the eternal players and the old school players at <laughs> Vegas. It's going to be kind of a party. Vegas is, I think, one of the perfect venues for a, a Magic tournament because... Hotels are cheap and plenty, and flights are cheap and plenty because people are, you know, basically the city is set up for people to come in for the weekend, right? And it's, it's designed for that. Right. <laughs> and the the way that it's set up for vintage and old school players is that there's a vintage event in the early afternoon every day, all four days of the Grand Prix. Mm -hmm. And then there's an old school event it, that starts in the early evening every day. So you could basically <laughs> go and play vintage in the afternoon 
old school in the evening every single day. And in fact, if I was yep. going, that's exactly what I would do. Yeah, <laughs> because these events too. are going to be awesome. <laughs> it'd, be, it'd be awesome. But I've got I've got two big trips that that month, including to New York. So I, I just couldn't squeeze this one in. Just you know, squeeze this one in, just because I'm going to be away from home so much. Well. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned it, Steve. For those of our listeners who are going to GP Vegas, those of you who are going to participate in this weekend-long Eternal Magic party, I want to hear about what you think, or I want to see the pictures on social media because it it probably all signs point to it being a pretty good time if you're going for that that goal. One forewarning, though, if you if you're going to play old school, Channel Fireball has its own ban and restricted list, so be mm. sure to look at that and not. Just assume they're using the Swedish or the Eternal Central rules or something else. Right. Theirs is idiosyncratic. And they also have a number of other rules. But speaking of the Swedish, the Swedish also announced this month a pretty big announcement. Kevin, I want to hear your reaction to this. They unrestricted Black Vise, mm -hmm. which everyone else in the world has done. But they also <laughs> unrestricted Maze of it. Yeah, that's an interesting one. And I, I think... Any, an assessment of that is directly tied to your assessment and opinion of the unrestricted strip mine, right? Those two things, yeah. they, they, they're kind of like they're kind of like Pluto and its uh, and Chiron uh, orbiting each other. So I I think it's going to be interesting. I think it promotes the kind of decks that I like, <laughs> specifically yeah, yeah. Living Lands Prison deck. But that's not the point. I I think that it's. I think that creates an interesting dynamic. There's a chance that it results in a kind of deck that a lot of people don't like. Yeah. There's a chance that it promotes yeah. a more grindy deck, which I think a lot of people have railed against in that format and community. But if you've got unrestricted strip mine, I, I think it's okay. Well, this is, that's the thing is the Swedish environment does not unrestrict strip. Yeah, so then that seems problematic. I don't know. It, what, I, what I think is interesting about it is that there's never been an old school environment that's unrestricted maze. So I just want to see how it plays out. I'm so curious to see how it plays out. I, I'm dying to know. Yeah. I'm just dying to see. I think, though, that Winter Orb and Blood Moon are both underplayed, and both of those cards are damn good against Maze of Ith. It's true. And, and especially Winter Orb. You know, it's just like that's another reason to play Winter Orb. Yeah. The other thing is, I mean, just from a tactical perspective, I tweeted this, but boy, Drop of Honey gets a lot better in that environment. <laughs> because, because Drop of Honey, just to explain that point, Drop of Honey comes into play, and if you have, if your opponent, you just wait until you, you get the maze into play as your opponent has to, the entire way that you get over the maze, if you're an aggro player is you have to play two creatures, which means drop of honey is going to be, is going to last for a while. It's not a one for one. And then once the drop of honey has cleared the board, then you have to play two more threats to get over the maze again. So, <laughs> and also it's synergistic because maze of it impedes your mana development and right. drop only costs one. So drop and maze are superbly synergistic. Um, but there's also another way, and this is the last announcement. There's another way to get over maze and drop of honey and all that nonsense. That's to play, <laughs> and that's to play combo. Nice. So I've uh, I've been, I've mentioned this many times before, but I have published ten articles of a twelve chapter series for VintageMagic.com on old school magic. It's been a lot of fun to put work on the series. The eleventh chapter is going live, so I've been told next week, probably on Memorial Day, and it's on one of the least explored areas of the format which is combo mm -hmm. and kevin it's interesting you know old school magic in just a couple of years has gotten a lot of coverage there are a lot of bloggers who write about it a lot of websites that have been you know writing strategy articles and and concept pieces and all kinds of other stuff but there's still one kind of undiscovered country area of the format <laughs> and that's combo uh you know, control, I would say control, prison, and ag even prison has gotten more press than combo. 
And combo, I think, is really underestimated in 93, 94, and even 95 formats. I think part of the reason is because people think, well, what the heck draw engines do you have for combo, right? Or what mm-hmm. tutors do you have for combo? Right. It turns out that there's actually quite a bit. For tutors, I mean, not only is there, of course, Demonic, but there's Transmute Artifact, which mm-hmm. is a pretty interesting and useful tutor. It's the main tutor, in fact, for the Power Monolith combo deck, which uses Grim, uh, not Grim Monolith, it uses uh, Basalt, right. basalt, <laughs> basalt Monolith, Power Artifact, and then you, you uh, transmute for the win condition Rocket Launcher, um, as well as the, uh, the Basalt Monolith. There's also, um, uh, for draw engines, there's uh, Howling Mine and Sylvan Library, which Sylvan Library is particularly effective when you use Mirror Universe as a, as a win condition. Mm-hmm. And uh, Bazaar sometimes complements Sylvan Library. Um, and then there's, of course, Winds of Change in the Under, under uh, World Dreams deck. But anyway, my, I've written an article on Combo, and I look at six archetypes in particular. I look at uh, Underworld Dreams Combo. I look at uh, Power Monolith Combo, which is the most, I think, successful. I look at uh, the t- Lands ta- Land Tax, uh, Lands Edge Combo. Land Tax is also another draw engine. Uh, I look at uh, Time Vault Combo, which is really interesting, and I look at Lich Combo, and I and I actually published some deck lists that haven't haven't been published in in two decades. And finally, I look at Recursion <laughs> Combo, which is my favorite combo, uh, the Looping Churning decks. And you'll see nice. there's actually a lot a lot in, yeah of cool cards in these decks. There's also of course the Verdure Enchantress draw engine in one of those decks. Um, there's other stuff there. They have a lot of potential. One of the things I assert in this article, and the reason I wrote it, is because I think that the combo decks are not only underexplored, but they're underrefined compared to some of the other strategies in the format. And I think that hopefully I will inspire some people to try some of them or work on some of them and and at least have fun with with them. I certainly have. So be on the lookout for that um, next uh, the week after Memorial Day. That's awesome. I have a special place in my heart for that Lich deck. It's just <laughs> the, amu- the amount of uh, risk taking that it entails is hilarious. You know, it's interesting. The uh, the the Baxter George Baxter deck that I'm publishing called the Charles Lich deck. He uses Lich. It's it's actually um, absurdly specific. The setup for the Lich. <laughs> he he uses Urnum Jin and Juzam Jin to get you kind of started to protect on offense and defense. But the Lich is really designed to be the finisher, and mm-hmm. he has very specific parameters for how to set it up. He says, I don't have the book in front of me, but something like you need five mana, uh, a fa- uh, a Fastmon in play, and a Dark Heart of the Woods in play. And right. once you get once you get that, you can go you just go infinite the way the deck is designed with Lich. In other words, you you play the Lich. You sacrifice a land to draw enough cards to play enough land to get infinite mana to get in to, not infinite but enough to just a, win a with lot. fireball. <laughs> right. Yeah, to win with fireball. So it it's interesting. He doesn't. It's not like it's like designed to play lich as quickly as possible and win. Rather, it's designed to s- set up a, a game state in which your opponent has to fight on multiple axes and then you just are able to you know essentially combo out in the split second with Lich. Right. It's so pretty it's cool. Almost treating Lich like a sorcery or a ritual of sorts. Yeah, it's it's almost like a Yog will kind of, you yeah. know, the, 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 the combo finisher. But I've also, it's also unfortunate that the modern rules, anyway, the modern rules, the modern rules have really dinged Mirror Universe. But Lich is one right. of the few areas where Mirror Universe actually works as a perfect win condition. So I, I, publish, <laughs> nice. I publish a Mirror Universe deck with Lich as well. So people can can play around with that, but but you know it's interesting. 
the range of wind conditions in combo is actually pretty broad. Fireball is the, you know, the archetypal, prototypical, you know, tendrils kill. Right. But there's a lot of them. I mean, Land's Edge, Mirror Universe, uh, Storm, Stormseeker is actually a fairly common uh, wind condition. Certainly Underworld Dreams. How does the um, recursion deck win? It, it can win pretty much any way it wants, but the most common way is with a fireball. Either a channel fireball or um, a... In the modern world, you mirror universe your opponent to a very low life after uh, sylvaning a lot, and mm. then fireball finishes them. Okay. Um, but you know, there's a lot of good win conditions in in 9394. You know. Yeah. Um, I just mentioned a lot of them, but they're more than you would think. <laughs> <laughs> Fun stuff. Yeah. So let's move on to the Star City Games Power Nine retrospective. So, Kevin, um, around the turn of the century, vintage, or as it was called then, Type 1 began <laughs> bubbling up, right? I mean, there was a period after the what I call the schism of Type 1 and Type 2, where Type 1 pretty much just died. And there was a, it kind of flamed out. There were some pockets, holdover pockets, like the Bay Area, Bay Area and some other places where people clung to Type 1. And in fact... There was an attempt in the late 90s by Inquest magazine to set up a, a, a really a lucrative series. They had like several thousand dollars, you know, prizes, but that that didn't last. That lasted one year and then it went away. In early 2000s, though, um, with really the emergence, I would say, of web communities, mm -hmm. communities of interest, Beatomania helped organize the Type One community and allowed it to build some pockets of tournament success. You know, B Dominia. A part of that was a neutral ground in New York, but there were other places. Like we, 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 you and I were, would travel around to Grand Prix and try and organize eight-player side events. You know, <laughs> PTQs. Right. We, you and I would do that. We would go to PTQs and Grand Prix, right. not to play in the main event, but to try and get eight mans to fire off Type One events. Mm -hmm. um, and there's and an especially good. Uh, there's an especially good set of tournament reports from GP Cleveland around that time. <laughs> right. Yeah. And there was still Gen Con and Origins, which were the, right. the, the, the annual place of pilgrimages, if you will, for the Type 1 players. Right. And, and those, those were actually not, no small thing. Um, but, the, but there was clearly a hankering for something more. And into the breach step, like people like Ray Robillard, um, who organized the Waterbury, which both was built on top of local store events, but then fed back into them. Mm -hmm. um, Pete Offling, who is a very savvy man, the Star City Games owner, he decided to, to step into this breach of Type 1, partly because he had hired Oscar Tan and some other writers who were doing a very good job, like myself and um, Darren DiPatista, of writing Type 1 content. And so he thought, well, why don't I organize some? And he tested the waters at uh, um, the GPDC Grand Prix DC, which Star City Games uh, co-organized, or was one of the co-tournament -term organizers, he hosted a big Type 1 side event that got, I think it was something like 80 or 90 players. Kevin, you might have gone to that. I didn't go to that, but I know Joe Bushman and some of our, our crew did. No, I didn't go to that one. Um, and he also organized a Type 1 event at Virginia States, even the, the December before that. I think that was in 2003. So in the spring of 2004, the, the Grand Prix DC side event was very successful. 
And then you and I actually went to a Grand Prix event, which I don't remember exactly which one it was. And it was Grand Prix uh, Cleveland, where Star yeah, City Games all, also held yeah. a successful side event. So they decided in uh, the spring of 2004, maybe the summer, to, to launch a Power 9 event. In, in, in other words, they would give Power 9, the Power 9 to the top eight and to see how that would work. And the whole series kicked off in, Ju- in July 2004 in Virginia. And they got 167 players, to which Virginia, was a lot. Which was a lot. Yeah. In fact, it was one of the largest, remains one of the largest Power Nine events that they'd ever held. Um, and it was so successful they got people from the Midwest, the Northeast, the South. You know, uh, Kevin, you and I drove to that. It was an amazing event. Um, and so they decided to do it again, and they held one in Chicago that year, and they held another one in actually the the second one was in Richmond, which they only got about 90 players. Uh, which we we dominated, and then there was a third one. They decided to do it again in Chicago, and they got about 140 some players, maybe 130 some players that year. But the, overall, the series was successful, right? I mean, they clearly worked. So they decided to double down, and in 2005, they announced. Well, at the beginning, at the end of 2004, they announced there would be nine events in 2005, and there would be um, an event. Essentially, they would have three stops that they would hit over and over again. There would be three in Virginia, three in Chicago, and three in upstate New York. And, and there would be nine, nine events. And that became the Star City Games Power Nine series, tournament series. And the series continued. I don't, I don't, I'm working on my, you know, my history of vintage series, so I haven't gotten all of it mapped out. But there were, in 2006, they transitioned to having, instead of one-day tournaments, they did back-to-back double headers. And they had a handful of events in 2006, and then I think two in 2000. And then they, sorry, then they had a few more in 2007, and then... They wrapped it up in 2008. But Kevin, I wanted to talk with you about about this series. I wanted to get you. I wanted to reminisce about some of the tournaments <laughs> we played in. I wanted to talk about the impact and legacy of the series. I wanted to talk about some of the specific tournaments that we remembered and enjoyed playing in, and what it meant. Right. So why don't we just begin by telling me what were your first memories of this series? My first memories of the series were carloads of us driving down to <laughs> Richmond because it happened multiple times and, and they, they kind of bleed together. But there were a handful of us from the Great Lakes region that would ride down in uh, sometimes even a rental van <laughs> when we had too many of us. And this was also the early days of teams in vintage. And yeah. you have to keep in mind that these teams are significantly different from the you know pro tour teams or sponsored teams or anything these are just these are just raucous uh, rowdy jokes of a thing that sprung up because of the internet communities that you alluded to and so that's when team Mindex started and then we had our our rivals down in the uh down in the adirondacks <laughs> team <laughs> short bus <laughs> right short, and short so, bus yeah well, and so the the one of the primary memories of this time period was the the team rivalry, and it was all very good natured. But we had a we had a great time with that too. Right, Team Short Bus was was the basically the playtest group in the in the Richmond Roanoke area, Richmond mm-hmm. area, but they branched out. They recruited Ben Kowal and Andy Probasco and people like right. that, and we we recruited beyond our Midwest geography as well. Yep. you know Carl Winter and some other players, R- Roland Chang. Um, but but there's no question that the it was there was kind of a feeling when you're in Virginia you're in short bus territory when you're in exactly. Chicago you're in mean deck territory exactly there's kind of a feeling of that it's certainly Gen Con <laughs> was um, 
But so so you remember you remember did you go to the very first one, Kevin? I think that I went to both the first and the second one, yeah. Did you go to the Chicago? You went to the Chicago one too because you played Gothslaver. Yep. And I, that was when I broke out the Doomsday deck, the yep. Beacon Doomsday. Well, and so you're alluding to something, but another one of my primary memories of this time was because we had this team atmosphere, there was a lot of collaboration going on inside of our team, inside of Short Bus, right. inside of other small there pockets was, of players. P, the, the, the teams generally coalesced around one deck. That doesn't mean that everyone on the team played one deck, yeah. but there was a coalescing. So when we went to um, the very first event, we all played Psychotalk, I think. Yeah. Most of us did. And we yeah. didn't do very well. We got destroyed by Fish. Uh, and, and the winner ended up being Four Color Control, but that was kind of the breakout of the Trinisphere Aggro Control deck, like the Jugger Stacks deck really broke right. out there. Right. And then... And then the second event was we all went to Star City Games Richmond and we, we dominated the tournament because we were the only people who brought a refined oath deck just after Forbidden Orchard had been printed. Yeah. So we had like we had like seven players show up with Forbidden Orchard Oath. Yep. <laughs> and we dominated half the top eight, <laughs> crushed short bus, and yep. won the event. <laughs> that was a great time. I and, think you, uh, got, you got 10th place like on tiebreakers or something. Well, uh, yeah, the only reason I didn't top eight is because I scooped you, to t- uh, my teammate, Jacob yes. Orlov, when he went into top eight. Um, yes. But yeah, that I mean, that deck was that deck, I think, is a very good example of what I was observing in terms of we really coalesced around that deck. That was a team effort. We built a really good deck and we were rewarded for it. And just so right. the audience can can understand that that oath deck, the creature base was all hasty monsters it was a chroma version 1.0 and spirit of the night yeah so that we could kill our opponent from 18 on the second turn of oathing so you'd hit him right. for six the first time you hit him for 12 the second time assuming they had fetched or forced then they were dead from 20 at that point right it was designed instead of having a control of deck it was designed to win as quickly as possible so they could race the, the, the juggernaut decks. Right. And it also it, just happened to be very good because both Akroma especially was just incredibly good when your opponent was trying to attack you with a 5-3. <laughs> yeah. And so Spear of the Night was a concession to the fact that the legend rule at the time it meant that we didn't want to uh, have to try and oath up one and sacrifice it, etc. I mean, it's still the legend we, rule today. but So we had to have another non-Akroma giant hasty creature that wasn't quite we, as good. The deck, though, the control base around Shell Around, it was extremely controlling. It was like a mono blue deck, but it was built with a rock-solid mana base to be able to survive, to be able to lay lands around Trinosphere and not get waste-landed. Right. And then, and it also was designed to race control slaver. But it actually had the built-in flaw, and we knew that. We, <laughs> we, we, we actually put an Iridescent Angel on the sideboard, I think, as a control package if you, you had to deal with certain things, if they could, yep. like, a lot of plows. But we also built in a flaw. We, we had no answer main deck to platinum angel which we built in an achilles heel because we knew at that particular event no one would have platinum angel in their sideboards but at star city games chicago everyone had platinum angel the next (laughs) event specifically to fight the oath deck (laughs) and just so just so the audience understands that was out of the control slaver decks primarily because it was difficult for the slaver decks to quickly answer us this is before graph diggers cage there just wasn't a good anti-oath card at that time and the slaver slaver decks yeah, still a, it was still a creature-based deck. It was still trying to play Goblin Welder on turn one or two and then gain value out of it, which so it was we especially vulnerable Oath. right to Oath. So yes. that's why so that's why Platinum Angel started to show up the next month. 
there were it's interesting there was almost no one who showed up at that event with forbidden orchard oath even though orchard was just printed like two weeks before right and we the were only way person excited did, about it the only person who did was aaron forsyth who was able to play in this event from his perch in r&d <laughs> because he came with an oath combo deck that was like had the only creature was uh, eternal witness he didn't do very well <laughs> because that deck just died to the workshop decks which every all the short bus was playing down right. there good times but we we the control slaver deck actually won the vintage championship that year in a field of workshop aggro because again this was when trinosphere was legal trinosphere was printed earlier in the year so we wanted a deck that could fight stacks and in fact that's exa- and control slaver and that's what we designed mm-hmm. but but we rolled into chicago kevin i was the only one who who had the kind of courage to play the doomsday deck we'd been working on everyone <laughs> else played our goth slaver deck which was nicknamed goth slaver because it was it was gothenburg sweden was where someone won a tournament playing both the thirst for knowledge draw engine and the intuition accumulated knowledge draw engine for a big 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 yog will mm-hmm and uh, you got pretty close to top eighting. I don't think you did. And I don't think you might have been X2 in that event. Yeah. And I, yeah, I think that I, was another top 16 for me. I top four with Doomsday after I made a, a huge blunder in the top four against a, a Trinosphere deck, not playing my Lotus on turn one Oops. Uh, with, with energy flux in hand. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> anyway, I don't I didn't want to really talk about the. You know that the 2004. <laughs> I wanted to focus more on 2005, partly because I'm working on my chapter on 2005, but more importantly because you had a very interesting tournament experience in 2005. So definitely. So just to kind of give people an understanding, there were three Power Nine events in 2004. The first one kicked off in Richmond in 2000 in January, and that was probably one of the smaller events. I, there weren't a lot of people who made it down there to the Richmond event, partly because the weather was horrible in January try and get there partly also because there were 200 players who went to the waterbury the week before the t- so it was like really bad tournament timing right um but i actually wanted to i wanted to before we get back to the star city games i, I wanted to actually actually ask you about the waterbury event in which our team had a disastrous performance which we played my my uh, storm 10 deck <laughs> mean deck tendrils <laughs> <laughs> kevin you remember playing that right I do. That deck was awesome and fragile and awesome. Yeah. Well, I the reason I wanted to mention it is because it was a creative failure. It, well, let's say it was a tournament failure, but a creative success. And Justin Walters wrote what I think is probably my favorite, might be my favorite article ever written on vintage on the deck. And it's, it's, it's just <laughs> in, enormously entertaining to read. Uh, but he, uh, he, he, even to this day, it stands out as one of the most entertaining uh, articles he played, he got top four with this deck, okay, and it was a 202-player tournament in which we're playing a deck that's designed to win on turn one. So the thought experiment that led me to this deck was deconstructing the Storm archetype because we had been playing Storm essentially the same way that people played Academy decks, right? You put in all these restricted draw engines, re- you know, restricted draw sevens, and cards like Necropotence and Yogmoss Bargain and Mind's Desire, and you cram them all together with a bunch of it unrestricted uh, and unrestricted mana acceleration like Dark Ritual and Moxon and Mana Crypt and Mana Vault and, and all that stuff. The question the question I had is, did you have to do all that work to win the game? You know, we essentially turned Fireball into Tendrils, but maybe you were doing more than you, need, you really needed to do. So the, the question that popped in my head was, how do you build a deck that can win on turn one and all it needs to do is generate nine Storm and cast Tendrils of Agony? How do you do that? So 
Mm-hmm. I went on kind of like a three-month experiment where all I did was try and do that and somehow convinced 10 other players to play that deck. <laughs> <laughs> now, I will go on record and say it was the fastest deck we had ever developed and perhaps one of the fastest deck ever in the format to that point. We were able to consistently goldfish more than 50% of the time on turn one. I remember and it being close to 60% turn it one. Was, I think it was about a 60 to 66% turn one goldfish out of like hundreds of goldfishes. <laughs> right. So the entertaining part about his tournament report, Kevin, was that he had, I think I tried to catalog this. <laughs> this is incredible. Yeah. He had um, 11 turn one wins in <laughs> in what was what? Like an eight round tournament, yeah. you know, plus top top eight <laughs> 11 turn one wins <laughs> including five in just the first four rounds and he <laughs> describes having w- winning through hands that included duress and force uh, on the draw uh force plus mana drain uh, two force of wills and two force of w- two bills and mana drain on the play <laughs> <laughs> the so thing, pr- the thing uh, i think we're, uh, there's a good chance that nearly everybody that's listening to this doesn't really can't really picture this deck so can you talk just a little bit about how it was constructed? It doesn't take much. Sure. Yeah, it's it, I can. It's four Tendrils of Agony, four Spoils of the Vault, four Knight's Whisper, four Sleight of Hand, four Brainstorm, four Chromatic Sphere, four Dark Water Egg, four Dark Ritual, four Cabal Ritual, four Land Grant, one Necropotence, one Ancestral, one Yogwill, Demonic Tutor, Consult, Lion's Eye Diamond, Black Lotus, Sapphire, Jet, Emerald, Pearl, Ruby, Mana Crypt, Soul Ring, Mana Vault, Lotus Petal, Chrome Mox, which was restricted at the time, Bayou, Tropical Island, and Windswept Heat. And the sideboard, the sideboard was Chain of Vapor, four Duress, four Force, one Bayou, one Doomsday, which was a joke, one Elvis Spirit Guide, and three Hercules. <laughs> so, for those of you who are paying attention with that rapid fire reading of the deck list, all the deck does is produce mana, and then cast tendrils or maybe cast spoils of the vault for tendrils you would frequently keep opening hands that all they could do was play one or two eggs (laughs) i mean the deck was so homogenous that sometimes you would just keep an opening hand that maybe had a cantrip and an egg or just two or three eggs and you could just consistently go off from that point on turn one what, what what Justin brilliantly called brilliantly called the golden ratio was turning one mana into one storm and one and one uh, one card. card yeah yeah and so there were a few cards that broke that like mana crypt and dark ritual gave mm-hmm. you more more mana than you know netted netted two instead of just turning into one uh, but the whole point was just how can I play on turn one you basically want to go something like land grant dark ritual uh, chromatic sphere or dark water egg brainstorm you know, spoils into another dark ritual or, or play like a cabal ritual and then spoils into tendrils. Like, and just play enough storm to win on turn one. That's all you're trying to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was re- remarkably successful at that. You know, unimpeded by force of will, it won, you know, it's a goldfish like 60% of the time. But yeah. this is a and format it, where Trinisphere is legal and force of will was u- ubiquitous. <laughs> <laughs> Which is why there were force of wills and Hercules in the sideboard, of course. Ex- exactly. And exactly. an extra land, <laughs> a fourth land. Right. Well, I, I, I didn't want to get I just wanted to mention that in passing, but I did want to get back to to the tournament series. The Eric Miller was a player in the, the, the short bus team who had tremendous success. He got second place in the very first um, Star City Games event with, you know, Workshop Agro Trinosphere. He was the first person, I think, Kevin, that really understood to move away from the stacks, the workshop control archetype. Mm-hmm. And the, and realize the Trinisphere is really maximized by going all in on Juggernaut. 
in agro and Karn and Juggernaut. I think he was the first person to really put that pattern together, you know, to, to thread the Trinisphere, Juggernaut, Crucible, Wasteland trifecta. Mm-hmm. And he, he was really rewarded. He top aided, he got second place at the first one, top aided the second, the Richmond one, and then he got first place in the ri- first Richmond Star City Games Power Nine event in January in 2005. So he, at that point, was like, the you know, he top aided three of the four Power Nine events uh, using basically Trinisphere Trini Workshop Aggro. But Kevin, the next event was in upstate New York at Star City Games Syracuse. And there was 100 and, 136 players showed up. And this tournament was very interesting. Our team fielded an Oath deck we called Chalice Oath, which had um, Chalice of the Void um, and Thirst for Knowledge as a draw engine. We cut the Intuition AK package and we added uh, Phyrexian Furnace as technology against uh, Control Slaver. Um, but you ended up doing very well <laughs> with Trinistacks. So you eschewed the aggro approach and and i should just mention the waterbury that i meant that I just referred to was dominated by control slaver mm-hmm. actually control slaver ended up winning that tournament in fact it was goth slaver which our team took to chicago <laughs> goth slaver ended up being like the first and second place uh decks and like something like 40 percent of the top eight the top 16 so kevin talk about what you played in star city games syracuse Leading up to that event, because Control Slaver was so dominant, I had tried a number of times, well, over the prior preceding years, actually, but we had played welder stacks in a number of different contexts, and we had yeah, like five different color builds. stacks with welders, yeah. yeah. And and a lot of people, to a lot of people, welder stacks was just the that was the baseline. That was what you built when you wanted to play with smokestack. And there was a lot of variation in it, but it was always a goblin welder deck, and it always had a disadvantage against control slaver it had a, a fundamental flaw against control slaver that which was that you were a goblin welder deck and it meant that all they had to do was activate mind slaver and that they could use your goblin welder to win them the game <laughs> which is a terrible <laughs> so just, terrible feeling so, so just so people understand the control slaver player like mana drains or tinkers up a mind slaver yeah. activates it takes control of the stacks player board uses the stacks player's goblin welder to weld back the mind slaver mm-hmm. and then the control slaver player can activate the mind slaver iteratively that way precisely and that was one of the things that was keeping stacks from doing very well at the time um among even, other things but even with trinisphere and crucible control slaver seemed to do pretty seemed to be doing pretty well against it primarily because thirst for knowledge played perfectly under a trinisphere and the precisely. only other the only other sphere that existed at that time was sphere of resistance so the yeah. lock parts in the stack deck were like smokestack trinisphere tangle wire and then crucible. The crucible which had just been printed in wastelands and that was pretty much it yeah and welder and and, yeah. and welder yeah to feed it all and karn to be disruptive to mox which and, was mostly like a one of but yeah, yeah usually a one of and as soon as trinisphere was printed people Obviously, we're heavily focused on Trinisphere for the better part of 2004, um, and it was frequently at the expense of Sphere Resistance too. There are right. a lot of builds that were just Trinisphere decks because people Trinis- thought, "Well, why would I use this this stupid symmetrical sphere?" <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, 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 I mean, it, it's hard to appreciate now, but Sphere Resistance and Trinisphere have really bad synergy together because Sphere Resistance takes you to the same casting cost a lot of times or less than Trinisphere does. Exactly, so- exactly, and so. The the stack decks at the time were just were just depressed, and they were they had they were kind of a dog to control slaver, and they were also 
happen to be weak against the new crop of Oath decks, right? Because right. you're trying to be a Goblin Welder deck. You're trying to play a 1-1 Goblin on turn one, and then they play Oath of Druids, and you just none of your lot components can stand up to that. Smokestack's too slow, Tanglewire, they just wait it out, and then they kill you, that kind of thing. So going into this event, I really wanted to play workshops. I really wanted to play Smokestack. It was my favorite thing. It had been for a while, but I didn't want to play Goblin Welder. Also, I didn't want to lose to Control Slaver at all. And one of the things that Control Slaver had a, had been beating me with for the prior months was just thirst for knowledge on their upkeep with you know Tanglewire on the stack, and then brainstorm this, that, or the other to fix their hand. <laughs> and then it was just you just kept losing and over and over and over again to their card quality, combined with the fact that that you couldn't just play a Goblin Welder and ride it to victory like you wanted to. So I put together a list of five color smokestack that had zero goblin welders and so why would you be playing the colors instead of just colorless mud because i loved all of the things that you could get out of the broken restricted cards i was playing tinker and balance and yongmas will and demonic tutor and i was even playing crop rotation at this time because i discovered that crucible got way better when you could rotate for your strip mine right um and you could just turn one, rotate for workshop to play stuff like a ritual. <clears throat> but then I realized that there was one of my other favorite cards out there that was especially good at punishing the current crop of I want to draw all the cards with Thirst and Intuition and AK and, and brainstorm. brainstorm. And that was Chains of Mephistopheles. And it just so happens that um, Chains of Mephistopheles fit right into the curve if you had like a turn one landmox and you weren't playing a Goblin Welder. It fit really well into the curve if you were then going to next turn play a Trinisphere or next turn play a Smokestack, that kind of thing. It was in testing that I then realized also that Trinisphere was just not performing as well as I wanted it to. The Slaver decks the slaver decks had all adapted to play under Trinisphere as, a, as right. powerful as so it was. Let's, let's, let's be specific about how that happened. Yeah. The, the, Trinis, the control slaver deck that won the Vintage Championship in 2004, Mark Biller, did so in a field of four... There were four Trinis Trinisphere workshop decks in the top eight. Mm -hmm. and he Myself beat, included. Yeah, he beat you in that top eight. Right, that's right. You played you played st stacks in that top eight, so you experienced mm -hmm. that. That was a very close match, by the way. It was. <laughs> if I had played Yawgmoth's Will like you told me to, I would probably be vintage champion that year. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what a, uh, but the other thing is the Juggernaut decks were doing very well. They were the generally the more popular workshop deck, and part of that is because, again, Trinisphere Juggernaut just is very hard to beat. Turn one mm -hmm. Trinisphere, turn two Juggernaut is usually going to win the game, especially if there's like a Tanglewire or a Wasteland to follow it up. But also, Juggernaut attacks each turn if able, which means Mindslaver can't stop it. <laughs> yeah, which also, is a, a turning, a, turning a frown into a smile. <laughs> right. Um, so, so, so why don't we set this up then by telling, tell the story about what happened in the 2004 Vintage Championship Top 8 Well, against Mark Biller. Yeah, the short story is that um, he and I played a game one that took like an hour and a half. Um, because we went back and forth and we exchanged resources over and over again. And at one critical point, I had a window where I had Wheel of Fortune in my hand. And which was which was played in the workshop decks at the time. Right. Yep. And I cast that Wheel of Fortune, and but the problem was is that the game was still too even and it gave him enough resources to win. Whereas if that Wheel of Fortune had been Yawgmoth's Wheel, I would have just had a one-sided blowout and I would have been able to walk to victory in that particular game. And I was suggesting that you play that instead of wheel in that spot. Exactly. Is your point. Yeah. yeah. I, my testing had suggested that. Yeah. So just just to be clear, the, the winner used uh, 
so the question we had just talked about is how did the control slaver deck adapt to Trinisphere and Crucible, which sounds mm. so vicious. <laughs> <laughs> Part of the answer was putting a lot of basics. These control slaver decks had like no less than four basics and fetch lands. Right. But they also played with a few dark steel citadels, which yeah. couldn't even be strip mined. <laughs> they were just totally indestructible. <laughs> right. So that But they also could be welded in and out right. for, you know, slaver recursion or pentavis or whatever recursion. Well, and so against the, the smokestack-based archetypes, the, the control slaver decks basically found that they could simply slow down, play a little bit more mana, play your Darksteel Citadels in your basic lands, at which point you can just get to three lands and cast a Thirst, get to four mana. Right. Under Trinisphere. Yeah, under yeah. Trinisphere, and just you know tap down to Trinisphere and play a fifth land. And before you knew it, the Workshop deck was was not closing the deal and you could right. just get a critical mass with your card selection and it, your card advantage and still win. It should I should also mention that the main artifact removal that was played at the time was Rack and Ruin, mm -hmm. which which was perfectly it was not impeded at all by Trinisphere. So right. all you have to do is get like a Dark Steel Citadel, an island, and a fetch land in play, and on your opponent's end step you can break it for red, a volcanic island, and cast Rack and Ruin, and it's a major, major blowout. Yep. Then you just untap and win. Or you play all your islands mana drain, and then you can mana drain into thirsts and nonsense like that, or a tinker, and then you just win the game. So, right? Exactly. Exactly. And yeah, mana drain was always the, a key back-breaking spell that if Trinisphere wasn't locking you down, you could just get to three mana and mana drain into the win frequently. Right. And, so, or you could play Rack and Ruin under Tanglewire pretty easily, effectively. Under Trinisphere, Tangle. Like, if your opponent has Tanglewire, Tanglewire Trinisphere, and uh, Crucible, it's a simple thing. You just Rack and Ruin the Trinisphere and the, and the Crucible, and you're right back in business. Yeah, exactly. So, all of this led me to a welderless smokestack list with Chains of Mephistopheles. It only had three Trinispheres, but I also had three Sphere of Resistance. But and no, you have four sphere of resistance. Oh, four sorry. And, and that 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 sphere and Trinisphere or orientation was kind of the key. Uh, you were saying yeah, you were that saying, was critical, but it was unheard this, of at that time. Right. You were saying the sphere of resistance is actually more important in this metagame than the Trinisphere. So right. you ran four sphere and three Trinisphere. And right? because my strategy against those slaver decks was to slow the game, was to play the slow game better than they could. And so the sphere of resistance was critical. I had to get to the point. I had to push that thirst for knowledge to, to costing four. four. I had to push that that rack and ruin to costing four. And chains of Mephistopheles meant that they couldn't just brainstorm under upkeep under under a tangle wire and gain value. That kind of thing. You didn't even run tangle wire though. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So so, so you're fighting on a completely different axis. So that right. that list worked out perfectly. I ended up defeating, I mean, I made top eight in that event. I ended up defeating Jeff Anand, who was a uh, control slaver mainstay. And he yeah. still would be today if he wanted to be. <laughs> <laughs> but all he played was control slaver back then, and we had a great match. And then I defeated Ely Cassis in that top eight, in the, uh, the, the top four, I should say. And then I defeated Bob Coaches in the finals on land still. And you can still find the um, the two-headed Well, yeah, let, let me, let me set this coverage. up. Let me set this yeah. up. So part of what was amazing about what Star City Games did was they didn't just organize and give away amazing prizes. They actually treated this like almost like a pro tour. I mean, they gave they did amazing coverage. They sent out A-list coverage team. Like they had Ted Ted Nutson, the Ferret. They ha had half of their uh, you know, the their uh, vintage staff, you know, 
writer teams doing coverage in these events. They did complete metagame breakdowns for these events. They posted for half of the events in 2005 every single deck list in the entire tournament. So if you're a, a data you know geek and you really want to go back and and look at historical vintage events, you can actually pull, look at every single deck in the event. They did card breakdowns for the Star City Games Chicago event where they listed not only the percentage of decks in the field and posted all the deck lists, but they also showed you every single card that appeared in the main deck, how many times it appeared, the percentage of decks it appeared in, the percentage of the field. So for example, the number one played card in the first Star City Games Chicago event in April of 2005 <laughs> was Mox Sapphire. It appeared in 143 decks, 143 main decks, appeared in 94.08% of the decks, and constituted 1.54% of the field. They did that all the way down to card number 319, Squandered Resources, uh, Satanel Flute, Windswept Heath, etc., which you know was one of each of those, and constituted 0.66% of the field. So they, they did an amazing amount of coverage. And not only did they do breakdowns, but they interviewed players, they had a blog, they posted standings, they did match coverage. Uh, they, I mean, it was just, you, you, for each of these events, there was like 20 entries updated during the course of the day on their website, Kevin. So this, and they did this all year, right? Right. So they real and these, the, these uh, event coverage web pages are still live, so people can go back and experience it, just like you know a, a pro tour event was archived. So they really put a lot of money and muscle and time and labor into the into the coverage of these events. Yep, all three of my top eight matches are still live from that event. To <laughs> Pretty be amazing. Read. It's hilarious. Well, here's here's the funny funny part. So the finals of this event uh, was was covered by. T- not just one one person, but by two writers. <laughs> <laughs> and it was called the Two-Headed Finals by Ted Knutson, and on the other hand, uh, half of it, Carl Winner. And they did a really, really funny coverage. So Ted Knutson covered it from Bob's perspective, and he not only covered it from Bob's perspective, but he covered it as if like he was rooting for Bob, right? Right. And then uh, Carl covered it from your perspective and, and covered it, Again, as if he was rooting for uh, for you. So the the, um, <laughs> the the title of the of the article cover that Carl wrote was called "The Two Headed Finals: Kevin the Man Crone," <laughs> and, and the title of the article for uh, uh, um, Bob's perspective was "Draw B- Go Draw Go Bob Cautious," <laughs> uh-huh. and just to give you a flavor of it. Um, you know, like, here's what Carl says about you. He says, Kevin is one of the most accomplished players in the format with countless power wins, along with back-to-back finishes at the annual Gen Con Vintage Championship. Uh, you know, he just talks you up. You know, it's like, he says, he says, here he says, I will be openly rooting for my player, Kevin, while actively jeering Bob Coaches and his plays (laughs) along the way. (laughs) You, know, you gotta so you gotta read Ted's the, the for opening ahead, paragraph of Ted's uh, coverage for Bob's side. In the middle, it features this sentence: "Speaking of opponents, Bob's enemy for this match is the exceedingly sinister Kevin Crone, who, in his brief time on Earth, has been known to kick babies and refuse to help old women across the street." <laughs> so, he, he clearly, continues. we're having some fun with this. Our man Bob, on the other hand, is a fountain of sweetness and light, but in a totally sweet, kick-ass way. <laughs> when not clearing the Syracuse streets of hoodlums and riffraff, he spends his time volunteering for the Boys and Girls Club of America and his local animal shelter. <laughs> nice. So you get a flavor for the uh, 
you know, the, the match. But I have to say, Kevin, and the, one of the reasons I wanted to interview you and talk about this is because this particular match is cemented in my mind is probably, probably, I think, I can't think of a single other match that top, tops it. The most imp- singularly impressive final vintage tournament finals match I've ever seen. I think that continues to this day, certainly in the Power really? Nine series and probably I've ever other, otherwise seen. Yes. Why is that? I, well, why don't you describe the match a little bit, and then I'll provide my comments. So, give us the overview without necessarily giving us the results. What was the what was the match like? So you're he's playing Landstill, and you're playing an extremely controlling workshop deck. Yeah. So give, you have to you have to understand that Landstill is not very popular back then. He was playing blue white Landstill. Blue white Landstill. I'm playing a slowed down version of a workshop deck, meaning as I described earlier, I'm trying to play the long game, and he is playing probably my worst matchup. His deck, did he have three or four discs in the main? Do you remember? Because I can't find it at the moment. He had at least three discs in the main, probably four, as well as Crucible of Worlds and Mana Drain and Plows and Disenchants and Force of Will, of course. And this is a terrible matchup for me. And it's funny, too, because I think it was only discussed after the fact that I didn't even consider offering any kind of prize split with Bob. And I have I have no conception of why in hindsight. Um, By the way, he had he had three discs main deck. Yeah. And two Eternal Dragon, uh three Crucible of Worlds main deck. He has three disenchants main. And three disenchants main, right. And, and his sideboard, sideboard has three energy flux. Right. <laughs> it, it's a really bad matchup for me. Um and I didn't even consider offering a prize split with him. I think because I was so in the zone from having played the deck all day that I was feeling supremely confident and perhaps too confident. Um, But sitting down for the match, I was just kind of ready to go. And game one, again, not jumping to the conclusion, but game one was an epic marathon that just kind of of boggles my mind. Give me the overview. So there's a three, you ended up doing all three games, three game match. Um, And these were all three long games, all of them, right? No. Game oh, okay. one was exceedingly long. Games two and three were both exceedingly short. Okay, so so <laughs> we're, game one was the, the the really the rubber game, right? Exactly. Games two and three, both of our decks kind of did the most oppressive thing we could do inside of the first two turns. Well, well let's start with the games two and three then. What happened in yeah. games two and three? Game two, Bob Bob opens with Black Lotus Energy Flux Land Go. Oh God. Yeah. And I don't really have an out to this situation. Well, you can play you can play um, Mox Land Chains to slow him down, but he doesn't uh, have like a lot of draw anyway. No, the game He's, is not going to end quickly, of course. But what what ultimately ended up happening, you know, that's obviously I'm I'm completely um, I'm completely behind the eight ball at this point. But the game really pivoted on the fact that I still had access to Orem's Thunder, which is some hilarious you know early two thousands technology. Um, <laughs> But suffice, I mean, for those of you who don't know what Orem's Thunder is right off the bat, it's a disenchant that costs three, and if you kick it for red, then Orem's Thunder deals damage equal to that artifact or enchantment's converted mana cost to target creature. It was a way for me to kill goblin welders and try to get two-for-ones against juggernauts and that kind of thing. But it's a three-mana disenchant. So he plays his turn one energy flux, and I play, I think it was on turn two, I played Orem's Thunder off of a Mox and a Lotus Petal, I think, and he had Force of Will for it, and that was really the game. So I, I still had outs, but not good ones, and he had Force of Will to protect it, and that was really all she wrote. He played Crucible shortly thereafter, and I never had enough mana to do anything else. In game three, though, 
I had, you know, turn of fate, I had Black Lotus on turn one into Crucible of Worlds, which he didn't have force for, and then I went Strip Mine, go. And so he led off with Fairy Conclave, which got stripped. He led off with his own Wasteland, which got stripped. I mean, two turns later, I played Turn of Sphere, and then that game was effectively over also. So we traded Lotus into crippling permanent kind of draws in games two and three. Which which brings us to the to the, the rubber game, game one. Right. <laughs> Game one, um, I'm on the play, and I had to mulligan to six. And recall that this isn't the time before the Vancouver mulligan, so there was no scry for me either. It was just mulligan to six, right, on the play. And I had... We we ended up trading removal and, and kind of dominant board, you know, individual uh, permanence many, many times. Throughout the course of this game... Bob played and activated all three of his Nevenril's discs. <laughs> Which, even a single one of Nevenril's discs should be backbreaking for a workshop deck that doesn't have Goblin Welder. Right? I don't have a way to recover from this situation. I, I, I mean, when he discs, all I can do is just play another permanent thereafter. But through a combination of the fact that my permanents were so impactful, especially Crucible of Worlds, and ultimately, in the end, because I had Yawgmoth's will, I was able to I was well, able to force him to disc the first yeah. time to get rid of a Crucible. I was able to force him to disc his own Crucible away the second time because, again, of my Crucible. And then Yawgmoth's will meant that his th- I was so far ahead that his third disc was a desperation, and I still had more cards in hand than he did in the end. And there was a balance mixed in there which was really kind of devastating right before the Yawgmoth's Will, because I right. think I balanced to the point where all the only card in my hand was Ancestral Recall. Is that what it was? Yeah. Yeah. I balanced down to just Recall in hand, and both of them resolved, and then I played Yawgmoth's. After I deployed some resources, he played a disc, and so I just played Yawgmoth's Will again, but my, my Will was basically balance away his hand, play Ancestral, replay Crucible, and passed the turns in a scenario where he had to disc again, but my hand was full and his hand was empty. My my recoll so so in essence the, the 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 flow of the game was you played stuff, he played stuff, he blew up the world. You yeah. played stuff, he played stuff, he blew up the world. Right. You played stuff, he played stuff, you blew up the world again. <laughs> and yeah. then and then you uh, you basically set up a long game where you were able to resolve balance, and it was a really backbreaking balance. Right. Where you got him down to one card in hand, and he had and, to empty empty his hand. Yeah. He. And, yeah. He. I didn't know he had the third disc when I balanced. I don't think, but my plan was kind of strong enough to overcome that third disc anyway, because I was playing starting from very early in the game. I was playing for a, a balance plus yog will kind of game. So all I did exactly. was. All I did was use my crucibles as must answer threats, basically, because he can't win through my crucible. He's land right. still, right? So you, so you, yeah. So you actually balanced before the third disc, just Correct. to be clear. Correct. Yeah. I didn't know he had the third disc when I balanced, <laughs> and I don't know if that was the one card he kept or if he pulled it off the top. I can't remember exactly what he had in hand throughout, but yeah, I balance. He plays disc. I play Yog Will, and I balance away his hand and then Ancestral and play Crucible. So i am got a full hand, and I'm forcing him to disc the third time. And then I just had threats after that, which were enough to get the get the game over with. Well, what I thought was the most impressive part about the game is, first of all, this match was riveting. It took forever, though. It was a very, very, very long match. <laughs> but what I thought was so impressive is that you held on to Balance and Yawgmoth's will, t- 
turn after turn after turn. True. You could have played balance in the early game. You could have played it in the mid game. But you picked what I think is literally the perfect spot of where you played balance. You waited for a very, very long time to play that balance. And then you waited a very, very long time to play Yawgmoth's Will. You could have played it earlier than that, yeah. I think. And it, the balance was incredibly impressive. Like, it was like the, the moment you picked to play it, the game, the all the energy swung entirely in your favor. And then, you know, you used that, and then it was like, it wasn't like a turn later you played Yawgmoth's Will. It was much later. You you kind of, Yog, I think you might have even Yawgmoth's Will and then balanced and then rebuilt your entire board, and that was it. Yeah, I think that's how it went. Yep. Is that you? You did all of that. You could have. You could have played the Yogmas Will a lot earlier in the game. I really think actually you had Yogmas Will in your hand with balance for most of the game. I think well, that's what it was. I ended up demonic tutoring for the it balance. Says, it's, no, it says it here you demonic tutor for ancestral. Um, Carl says. Oh that. no, you're right. No, you're right. I sorry, I DT'd for ancestral. You're right. I was because I was holding the balance already. Yeah. So yep. you so you DT for the ancestral almost as if you wanted the ancestral to be bait. Like, counter the Ancestral, and I'll be protecting this balance in Yawgmoth's Will. If the balance is countered, then you'll have the Yawgmoth's Will at the very end of the game. It's kind of yeah. how you did it. But from the player perspective of a stacks player. <laughs> so you, well, you it's important you to keep in mind that neither of our decks can win the game quickly. This is before right. Jace the Mind Sculptor. This is that neither of us had a major haymaker. I, I mean, I could tinker into Karn, but that was unlikely to work in the face of plows and discs and disenchants. So the game had to be won long. It had to be won over a series of turns. And so I knew he didn't have Yawgmoth's Will. I knew he didn't have... Well, he, I mean, he couldn't effectively balance. That His deck just can't maneuver a point where balance is going to be good. So I had, I basically had all the card advantage. He had standstills, of course, but they were just drawing him into more one-for-one -one removal. So but, I, I just had the feel for how that matchup was going to go, and I was rewarded for it over the course of a right. very long game. Very, very long game. It was, I think, one of the most entertaining matches I've ever seen of Vintage, certainly in the finals. So um, you, you won the event, and the top eight, did not have, despite Workshop doing very well, you were the only, I guess there was a Stacks player in the eighth place, and then, which was a more of a traditional five-color Stacks deck with Tangwire and Goblin Builder and, and Thirst and all of that. Right. And you you won the event with Trinis, Trinisphere, Crone Stacks, we called it Crone Stacks for a while. <laughs> yeah, it got but my name because it, nobody had been playing without Welder and no one had been playing with Chains of Mephistopheles. Right. And at that event, the coverage team interviewed people and asked them what they thought should happen, what should uh, Wizards restrict. Nice. And there was, you know, I don't know, 10 people interviewed. So the coverage team, J.P. Mayer and, and Carl Winter, asked asked about, you know, a handful of players, what should happen? Um, it was Ben Cole, Andy Probasco, myself, Mark Perez, Ray Robillard, Justin Walters, Peter Olswecki, Eric Miller, and you. And they, the question was, what should be restricted and what will be? I want to read these because it's... Because, <laughs> you know, this is, again, this is February 2005. Ben Kowal said, should be restricted, intuition, dark ritual, trinosphere, will, nothing. Andy Verbasco said, should, will, nothing, nothing. I said, should, goblin welder, because I thought goblin welder was used everywhere, will, nothing. Mark Perez, should, dark ritual, trinosphere, heck, any of the cards in the tier one, will, nothing. Ray Robillard, should, dark ritual, elvish spirit guide, and trinosphere, will, Mishra's workshop, and dark ritual. Justin Walters, should, goblin welder, will, nothing. Peter Olswecki, should Trinisphere and Dark Ritual, will Trinisphere. Eric Miller, should nothing, will nothing. Kevin Crone, should nothing, will nothing. Well, I say all that to say, just three days later, um, on March 1st, Wizards of the Coast announced 
the annual, uh, the quarterly ban and restricted list announcement, and one card got restricted. And Kevin, what was it? <laughs> Trinisphere. Trinisphere was restricted, and it was a very interesting announcement. This was an announcement in which Aaron Forsyth actually wrote on behalf of the DCI, just like he did recently. And it was a very difficult announcement for Aaron because they had to ban a bunch of cards in Standard, including the Artifact Lands, um, because Affinity had just dominated Standard. And here is what Aaron had to say about Trinisphere. He says, I could repeat many of the paragraphs above with some of the words changed to cover the changes in Vintage, but I think I'd rather summarize. Um, Trinisphere is a nasty card, no bones about it. It does ridiculous things in Vintage, especially combined with Mishra's Workshop. As I've said in the previous column, we almost restricted it even before it was even released. Now that it has been floating around for a while, and in this case, 13 months, right, Kevin? <laughs> right. The, Kevin, the Vintage crowd understands that the card does good things with the format and bad things to the format. While it does serve a role of keeping combo decks in check, it also randomly destroys people on turn one with little recourse other than force of will. And those games end up being la end up labeled with a heinous word, unfun. Not just I lost unfun, but why did I even come here to play unfun? The power level of the card is no jokes either, which is a big reason I don't feel bad about its restriction. Vintage, like other formats with large card pools, always runs the risk of becoming non-interactive meaning the games are little more than both players goldfishing to see who can win first. Trinisphere adds to the problem by literally preventing the opponent from playing spells. We don't want Magic to be about that, especially not that easily. If Combo rears its head, we'll worry about it later, but for now we want people to play their cards, really. So what I think is interesting about this, this restriction, Kevin, there's a lot that people can say, but first of all, let's point out you are the last person to win a major event with, with multiple Trinisphere. So congratulations for holding that... <laughs> <laughs> that Nice. <laughs> that notable historical footnote. Um, but the second point, what's interesting about it is that Trinisphere was recognized to be pretty brute for a long time, right? I mean, not only was Trinisphere printed in, in early 2004, but then they gave us Crucible, thanks to the You Make the Card contest. Um, and, and it seemed to be dominating for a long time. I mean, it made up half the top eight of the Vintage Championship, although it didn't win. So maybe that's what staved it off from being restricted. But by early 2005, and then by the time you won the event, I think that the there was a sense that Trinisphere was not really that dominant. And that's why that poll I just read, only, what, one person, two or three people thought that it should be restricted, would be restricted, right? Right. In fact, only one person said they thought it would be restricted. And one, two, three, four people, maybe five, said they thought it should. Maybe four people said they thought it should. So the point is that, in retrospect, I mean, today we would think Trinisphere would be an abomination on the format if it was unrestricted. <laughs> <laughs> but, but at the time, it really wasn't viewed as that oppressive. Was do you think that's a fair assessment? Yeah, I completely agree, so and that's why I had to re-envision the Workshop Smokestack deck is because I didn't think Trinisphere was enough to just make that deck win. So let's talk about that for a second. I mean, it's a card that we all agree would be ridiculous today, but if it were unrestricted. But at the time, it didn't. See, it's there was a, a period in which it seemed like it might merit restriction, but that time passed when they ultimately decided to pull the trigger. And that kind of reminds me of the way in which they treated Lodestone Golem, right? And there right. were periods where, like, there was a period where it was like half the Vintage Championship top eight. They decided not to pull the trigger. Mm -hmm. It didn't even win, and then they pulled it at, like, one of the oddest times. So what do you think this restriction says about the way in which... The DCI, I mean, this was obviously the notorious unfun restriction, the first articulation of that. What, is th what does this restriction mean for the format, and what does it mean for ban and restricted list policy? 
I, I cannot say with any kind of definitive stance, but it means a couple of different things in my eyes. One is that it is kind of the model for a different type of restriction because it was the first and unfortunately kind of not the last, but the first that really cited community feedback as opposed to um, actual tournament performance, right? Yeah. And it's, so it sets that precedent. It, it's, it's hard to tease out my own personal biases from in order, in order to properly answer your question from any kind of objective standpoint. But I had already acknowledged that which you just described. I felt like Trinisphere had, had crested this wave and was no longer any kind of dominant feature of the format. And also, I had just had much more success just days earlier with a deck that had deprioritized it in favor of Sphere of Resistance. So I was, at the time, really riding kind of a high of having properly read one particular tournament's metagame and performed well. And in hindsight, I I expect that if it hadn't been restricted there, it would have to have been restricted at some later point. Yeah. But it's really difficult to tell how much later that would have been. Yeah, that's the interesting thing, right? I mean, Trinisphere, if it had not been restricted, a, a year later, Dredge comes into playing, being. And Dredge doesn't care about Trinisphere. It wins through Trinisphere, right? right? Also, in 2007 was when... Uh, Gush was unrestricted. Trinisphere would have certainly kept the Gush decks in check. Right. Um, it, here was the, the immediate impact of the restriction of Trinisphere was that Mana Drains for the next couple of months, at least, just totally dominated the format. There was right. a, a really a huge blossoming of the variety of Mana Drain decks in the immediate months after the restriction of Trinisphere. The format went from being something like TPS being doing very well under... Trinisphere decks because they were designed to fight Trinisphere decks. TPS, Trinisphere, Control Slaver, Trinisphere were that was basically the top of the metagame. Then Trinisphere was restricted, and we saw Control Slaver, Gifts decks emerge just at the same time. In fact, the very next tournament, which was the April Star City Games event, I'm oh, sorry, the March, yeah, it was the March, the April, it was the April Chicago event, was when the very, very first Gifts deck won a major tournament. It was the Short Bus Severance Belcher deck. Ben Kowal won the tournament. Um, that was the breakout of that deck, and then it incorporated Flame Vault, which was the next combo, and then I invented Mean Deck Gifts, and then that Gifts deck took over. But that deck, a deck called Sensei Sensei with Future Sight, um, even Psychotog decks and Control Slaver decks, just those decks do really dominated Vintage for the next couple of months. They were like 60-70% of the metagame. There was a very, very, very big European Vintage event in May, um, where they were giving away like power nine, I think, to the first place winner. And that whole top eight, seven of the top eight decks were mana drain decks. The winner was dragon combo, but that was really the restriction <laughs> of Trinisphere actually dramatically reduced the strategic diversity in the format in the sense that it led to a lot of mana drain decks, at least in the immediate term. In the long term, though, it actually created a much more diverse set of workshop decks. And the irony is that workshops ended up winning the vintage championship that year after the restriction of of Trinisphere. And then uh, Robert Vroman created a completely different workshop deck, uh, Vroman stacks, that, that broke out. But in the short term, it didn't actually seem to help. In the long term, it would have been... A, it, in the long term, it may have diversified the workshop decks, um, but it certainly didn't help diversify the format in the short term. Is that your impression? Yeah, it is, and... It, that was a very formative restriction to my and I think our current, uh, I guess, outlook on policy. I mean, you, at the time, you already had a pretty well-formed approach to policy. 
and we weren't shy in discussing it, but it really solidified for me how uh, any restriction that wasn't purely results based was, I think, inappropriate. Yeah, I may have I may have that taken a, my own personal position a little too far in that regard, but <laughs> but it it was formative for how I view things today and and ever since. From a timing perspective, it was certainly weird though. But I mean, it it did. To be fair, the transfer deck did win the the sixty player SCG Richmond in in um in January, but it didn't it didn't do barely anything at the Waterbury, which was dominated by Control Slaver, and then you did win Syracuse. But the decision was presumably made in advance of that. So. Yeah. And you it's know, it's worth noting that this is the, the period before social media, right? This is this things were discussed on forums and yes. via email and such, but there there was no widely regarded consensus among a community of players available online. You, you know the the internet forums were still well, somewhat sparsely populated, and wizards didn't really participate in them. I think they were. I I I actually think they were very vigorous forum debates. And a lot more email than social social oh, yeah. media. That's but, what um, I mean, though. It was it was not it was not something you could point to for ev- unless you were participating in the debate. It was not something you could point to true. and say this is the consensus in the community. Well, I want I want to wrap up here. Uh, at least this, you know, there's a lot more we could say about the events, and we'll stop. You know, we can save them for another day. I will point out that the next event you got ninth place with post restriction at Chicago. Mm-hmm. And, then, and I was still playing a uh, five-player smokestack. Yeah, and then effectively. The, the, and then the, the event after that, which was back in Richmond, I got ninth place and you got 11th. Play, we both played the workshop, your workshop, Cronestacks deck. <laughs> and, and it's worth noting that the individual in between us in 10th place was Andy Probosco. That's, uh, <laughs> well, that's one of the, yeah, that's one of those examples. Culture. Right, exactly. Uh, so some of, some of you people who have wa- enjoyed watching the VSL <laughs> Right, and and possibly and watch Brassy stream these days. Uh, our history collectively goes goes back to these days, way back. Um, but I, you know, the, so the Star City Games series had some ups and downs, and then I did want to briefly mention the Shooting Stars event. Why don't we just? Why don't I we? Think Rising Stars or shooting, no, shoot, stars? shooting Stars? Shooting Stars. Okay. So in in June, early June. Oh, there was an event, in the next event in upstate New York, which was in Rochester instead of Syracuse. Star City Games promoted the event by inviting a handful of, of professional Magic players, like Zvi Mauschwitz, um, you know, some Pro Tour winners, Rich Hohen, Pro, Pro Tour Top 8 player, and others to be shooting stars. And Kevin, you were one of the shooting stars. I couldn't make that tournament because I had a graduation event. Mm-hmm. But this was a really well-promoted event in which they gave you a, uh, a, a T-shirt, uh, it's three T-shirts. I think they gave shirts. They gave they then if you someone beats a sh- shooting star, wasn't there like another award, like a pack or something? I I thought that's what the shirts T-shirts were for. Were. Yeah. Okay, you had to give them away if someone beat you. Exactly. <laughs> We'd like to. You lost all of them apparently. <laughs> oh yeah, that was not a good showing for me. Um, but that was a pretty amazing event. There was almost 170, 180 players showed up for that event, and the coverage was intense and amazing. So it was another example of how Star City Games really marketed this series, right? Mm-hmm. But what I want to mention is this the series kind of withered out. In 2005 there were nine events, in 2006 I think there were fewer events. They tried they did make a shift in 2006 to making the events not just a, an event, but it was a Saturday and a Sunday event in which they gave away Power 9 both days. I think there were probably let's say six or seven maybe fewer events that year. And in 2007 there were probably even fewer than that. And then there were only, I think, two, maybe three events in 2008, and the whole thing flamed out. But Kevin, I don't have a, an attendance record, but basically, I don't think the attendance ever shot much past 170. You know, you had 
Oh, yeah. You had the very first event was 167. The Shooting Stars event was probably like 170 something. And then, you know, the the Chicago events were like 150 at the peak. But the, the, the Richmond events settled down into the, you know, 60s, 70s. The um, Northeast events were maybe, you know, they broke about 120, 130. But what, what do you think is, why do you think that was, first of all? I have a, I, I can speak to that part of that why that was. But what, what, what was the, and what was the legacy of the, of the series? Well, one of the things we haven't really touched on thus far in this show is the role of proxies in the yes. whole series. Yes. And it was initially, it's funny, it, it went through, I don't know, if, I don't know if it's appropriate to draw the analogy. Well, they the started same, with this, five proxies and then right. they changed it to 10 in 2005. But right. the, the opinion of proxies in the community went through something akin to the stages of grief, <laughs> <laughs> meaning it was initially heralded as this great thing. It was the thing that drew so many people in. It was the thing that it was the shot in the arm that the format in the community needed where all of us diehards, and it was a small community, the diehards had been playing vintage and as you said, traveling the GPs and such, and the, the Waterbury was a, a, a big thing. But we were bolstered by all the, the incoming energy and incoming player base and so that's was the initial spike right in attendance but then time went on and you know some people may have drifted away and the format gets a little bit more of a ho-hum kind of yeah it's been around now it's a it's a mainstay we're going to play each each other every other month in some major event and then as some time went by some some lingering not lingering some creeping kind of dissent started to, to seep in about maybe this proxy thing wasn't such well, a good idea well, I think part of the problem was, and, I, and here's my theory on what really ruined the series. I think, I think that, I think proxies are part of it. But I think essentially what happened to the vintage series was exactly what happened to Legacy, this Legacy series that was that that was developed around what 2009, 2010, which was that the Star City game series when it started, the price of power was very accessible. Mm -hmm. The price of vintage cards are very accessible, <clears throat> but not really a year and a half, two years into it. Within two years, the price of power doubled this series and then it increased no. again and in some sense i think the star city games power nine series was a victim of its own success that is to say it created a market and an environment and a metagame that really encouraged people to play vintage but it had the effect of making vintage unaffordable you know right. and it really so, they, they had to it, they, yeah and that's they, what caused people to observe that maybe this proxy thing wasn't such a good idea so the theory was, if you had forced people to buy the cards, own the cards, then people could it could have been sustainable in the long run. But that's a mm. really tricky counterfactual. Oh yeah, you, it, you was, it was. It was an interesting debate. You might have made it made sustainable, but but then how do you grow it, right? You've got a core that then can't buy in. So mm. I think it was just a. It was essentially, you know, what the. It's interesting, but the the legacy events, the legacy invitationals, and legacy power. You know, there were the 5K legacy 5Ks and standard 5Ks. Really, what happened? Here's what I think is the legacy of the Star City Games Power Nine series. <laughs> the legacy of the Star City Games Power Nine series is now the the Star City Games. Uh, what it's what's it called now? The Star City Games series. Um, yeah, the opens. Yeah. The Star City Games opens. When I was writing for Star City Games, what they did was they started doing 5Ks in 2009 or 2008, I think, where they would have day one would be standard and day two would be legacy, and they were 5Ks. And they were essentially the model of the Power 9 events. The same approach, which was where day one and day two, you both had amazing prizes. And then that blossomed into just opens from uh, 5K, because they were often giving more than 5K. And then they had invitationals built into it. And now it's just become an entire series. They've got these opens everywhere. 
right? And they got the Invitational. I think that's the legacy of the Power Nine series. It's the Star yeah. City games. It's it starts. It taught. It gave Star City the experience running events. It taught them how to do it, how to build a network of tournament organizers that could host major tournaments all across the the the, the really the the country and. It taught them kind of how to handle coverage. It, 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 the same formula for coverage, everything was done the same way they did the Power 9 event. And what happened to Legacy is essentially the same thing that happened to the Power 9 series, which is that Legacy created a huge player base, but the price of dual lands skyrocketed and the price of Legacy staples skyrocketed. And then it became essentially the same thing. It became unaffordable and they eventually wound it down. Mm-hmm. So I think yeah. the legacy of the Power 9 series is the current Star City Games Open and it actually set up what happened. It, it was much like the legacy of victim of its own success. Both the legacy opens and the Power Nine series were ultimately stunted by card price and availability, which are the flip side of each other. You know, the higher the price, the less available the cards are. So, well, and so I agree with you completely. And also, it's an interesting thought experiment for. I mean, it's let's say it's outside the scope of this particular episode, <laughs> perhaps not a future one, but it's an interesting right. thought experiment as to whether or not the fate for vintage would have been basically the same if proxies had not been allowed. So I, I, yeah, I, I think my, I guess the way I, where I land on that now is that I think it would have suffered the exact same fate as legacy. If proxies had been allowed, it would have created a longer tail, not, you know, if proxies, not, if you had forced people to buy in, it would have created a longer tail, but the prices still would have skyrocketed and it would have right. ultimately had it been capped by that. So, yep, I agree. So an interesting trip down memory lane. Um, we didn't participate you and I as much in the end of the series well, as we did in the well, beginning. Well, actually I, I participated pretty heavily through all of it. I, at one point I counted up, I think I top eighted nine of them. I don't remember how many I participated in. I think I roughly participated in half and, and doubled that amount. I, 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 uh, I top aided the second and third one, and then I top aided a ton of them in 2006. In fact, I top aided some of them back to back. But yes. if if folks are interested in in reading more about that, just follow my history of vintage series, uh, which is available on Eternal Central. You the chapter for 2004 is is up right now, and five will be. I'm working on it. Hopefully, up in June. And the ultimate goal for all of this is like the Gush book is to have a chapter for each year in the history of the format in one book. So sometime next year is the goal with the 25th anniversary of the game. So if you enjoyed nice. this discussion and you enjoy reading about the history of the decks and the evolution of the format and the, the ways in which the same strategies have persisted over time, just take a look at that and support that series. Definitely. And if any of you are listening and you participated in the series back in the day and you have some fun memories to share with us, uh, send us a message on Twitter or email because we'd love to hear about it. Definitely. I know it was, I mean, again, maybe a topic for another show, but you can trace the lineage of most of the active old school vintage players back to this series, right? No we question. Mentioned, we mentioned the Brass Man and, and Rich Shea got his start on this series. Rich Shea played in, in fact, I think he played in this Shooting Stars event. He certainly played at some of the events um, that year. Mm-hmm. In fact, if I look at the coverage, I can tell you. Um, right. But, uh, um, and so a handful of us vintage old timers trace our roots back to this series, which is which is really cool. Yeah, definitely. So in conclusion, I want to point out that our next episode will be a return to form with regard to metagame analysis. As we set up top, we will give the, the metagame a little bit more time to solidify post-restriction, and then we'll talk about the new decks and the new trends. So don't worry if you're craving that metagame update. <laughs> but until next time... 
Thank you very much for listening to episode 66 of So Many Insane Plays. You can tweet us at many insane plays or email us at so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com. As always, and until next time, we wish you many insane plays. We did not game.